Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the final Heredity podcast of 2021 with me, Dr. James Brigan. And what a year it's been. Honestly, I have no idea how to describe it. But I do know how to describe the research papers and reviews that we've seen published in Heredity this year. Outstanding. And in today's episode, we're going to look back at some of my favourite moments from the past year of the Heredity podcast. And if I'm being honest, what stands out most to me are the incredible collaborations we've heard about this year. And first up, we have a clip from Drs. Porak Flood and Gray Munro, who talk about their review paper on the population genomics of adaptive loss of function. And the origin of this story is honestly going to sound very familiar to an awful lot of researchers. So to begin with, maybe we can explain how the paper happened. Uh, so myself and Gray didn't actually know each other. And uh, at the time I was living in Cologne in Germany, and I saw this tweet from Gray. It was announcing a talk he was going to give in Cologne. And with the tweet was a picture which looks a lot like figure six in the current paper. And I had seen something very similar in my own data, but I wasn't able to attend his talk. I can't remember why. But I thought, oh, I really want to meet this guy. I want to, I want to talk to him because he's presenting images of results that are really similar to what I have. So I sent him a message on Twitter and said, hey, would you have time to meet? And by chance, his, uh, his girlfriend lived around the corner from where I lived in Cologne. So we met at a, a bar called uh, Café Goldmund, which is this really nice bar full of books and everything, just perfect setting. And we went, had a beer there and we started talking and we realized that we were both seeing very similar results in our data. And we felt there was a gap of knowledge in the community. And it was something that there was room for a review for. And, and that's how it grew from there. And it was actually something I think, Gray, you had already kind of started writing a review on the topic, actually. So I, I, I sort of jumped on board. <laughs> yeah. So basically, you know, I had been doing some some other work in the past where we had been looking at some genes in Arabidopsis thaliana that showed some evidence of what could be called adaptive loss of function. And so as I sort of dug into that and was studying that, I realized there was kind of a, a shortcoming in the in the literature and the sort of appreciation for the role that this kind of variation can play in adaptation. So this is what kind of inspired the need for a review. And I think loss of function mutations are interesting because they raise all kinds of questions in population genetics about what kinds of variation can contribute to adaptive evolution. And then what does that variation look like at a molecular level. And what we realized when we sort of started talking and we were hanging out at Goldmoon and considering this paper is that there's a lot of sort of surprising phenomenon that you observe when you start looking into these cases of adaptive loss of function. This interview explores how genes are broken and why that's not always a bad thing. Hear more in the March episode, When Less is More, Adaptive Loss of Function. Another really incredible collaboration featured on the podcast this year came from Professor Anne Yoder and Drs. Mario Dosres and George Tiley, who, earlier this month, told us the story of how a fabulous house party turned into a fascinating paper on mouse lemur mutation rates. Well, I'll start here and then hand it to Mario, because we can blame it on Mario, really. (laughs) (laughs) So... Uh, this was, I think, at the summer of 2017, so quite a few years ago at this point. And Mario and his wife, Fabricia, had just become engaged and they were visiting the United States. And Mario and I are dear friends and colleagues for a, a number of years now. And so 
I took my entire lab to the beach and we rented this really fabulous house in Riceville Beach in North Carolina. We called it the movie star house because it was really quite extravagant. And so we were talking about divergence time estimation and mouse lemurs and so on and so forth. And Mario (laughs) made a comment that started this whole thing. So at this point, I'll let Mario tell his side of the story. (laughs) Yeah, I think I suggest, you know, why, why don't we sequence the genomes of parents and offspring in the, in the mouse lemur colony and we count the number of mutations to get an estimate of the mutation rate? So I'm, I was always being very keen on this question because I work on developing methods of the molecular clock. So if we have good estimates of mutation rates, we can use that to calibrate evolutionary trees to geological time. So that's, that was why I was interested in this. And all my work is computational. I mean, I don't do any well lab experiments or sequencing myself. So there I was with Anne and other research group, and they love sequencing, and they have access to this amazing colony at the Duke Limor Center. And I thought, hey, I mean, this is such a simple thing to do, you know, sequence the parent, sequence the offspring. <laughs> all you have to do is count the number of differences. I mean, boy, were we completely wrong with this. <laughs> because the, <laughs> the point point is we neither of us have ever done this kind of work before so we were very naive when we approached this and i think it's fair to say Anne has now very quickly become one of the world experts on on how to do this because well, all the all the stumbling blocks that we we, we met um to get this done no, but the the truly, I mean, what makes us both laugh is re- re- recollecting Mario's statement, oh, this will be easy. <laughs> this is an incredible episode, titled Surprising Little Lemurs. Now, it's called that because the results they found were genuinely unexpected, but also because, well, I'll let Anne explain. So we we actually had designed the study so that we had a great grandfather and, a, you know, we had multiple generations, but everything about the study sort of hinged on this great grandfather. His name was Pesto. And <laughs> so we sequenced Pesto and various of his offspring and descendants, we thought. And then once we had the <laughs> genomes, guess what? Pesto wasn't related at all to these reported <laughs> offspring. And this is where we get into mouse lemur sex. If your audience can bear hearing about mouse lemur sex, if that's not too R-rated. So in nature, they have very active male-male competition for the females, and that's part of the deal. You know, So they're sperm competitors, and the male-male competition is very much part of the dating process, if you will. So to mimic that at the Duke Lemur Center, what they do is they house two males next door to the soon-to-be receptive female, but they cannot access her and vice versa. (laughs) And so leading up to her receptivity, the males become more agitated and they fight. And the assumption is that whoever is the dominant male is going to be, you know, the (laughs) successful breeder. And in the pesto's case, not only was he dominant, he was observed embracing, if you will, (laughs) the the mother. Um, So they, of course, made the assumption that he was the the father. Well, it turns out that Asparagus, who was his roommate at the time, was actually the successful uh, sire. So he had somehow snuck in there and, uh, you know, done the deed. <laughs> what a scandal. <laughs> what a very scandalous, indeed. Uh, very scandalous. But anyway, so we lost our 
pyramid. And so this is why we sort of reduced down to the generations and trios that we had. Not the best surprise, perhaps. Of course, that didn't stop Anne, Mario and George producing a really fascinating piece of work. Another collaborative pair that showed an incredible level of resilience in the face of an unpleasant surprise were doctors Milan Vitileg and Pierre Schurd, who set out to study maternal effects in beetles and found only negative results. But they still produced one of my favourite heredity papers of 2021, and I think this clip will explain why. You know, which was great with this paper somehow is to show that, you know, you get negative results, but it doesn't mean that your experiment wasn't robust. You know, that's why there's peer review. That's why there are experts looking at your design. And the fact we found very strong genetic effects and the method we've used is the method has been used in the past to detect maternal effects. You know, they wouldn't come up with something new. And it was a great opportunity to show, and actually we've published on that before with Milan as well, on the importance of, you know, not always biasing publications toward what's significant. The aim, we pre-registered the study, and still everything, the take-home message is still there. Even though we didn't find any maternal effects, we also might have prevented finding any maternal with environment interactions on offspring traits. It doesn't mean that this is not a valid design and quite the contrary. So I think that was very uh, rewarding for a journal like Heredity to allow us to publish such, uh, such results and findings. Yeah, if, if I'm honest, one of the things that really appealed to me about this paper is the fact that you have arguably found a negative result in some places. And I think there is in academia this pressure to refocus your paper, to tweak your hypotheses, to make it become positive, to kind of spin it into something that air quotes is better. And um, I think this is just a really good example of hypothesis-driven science. As you said, it's a non-pest species. You find some really interesting results. And I, yeah, I think it's a really wonderful paper. And I'm, I'm really happy to see papers written in this way getting published, because I think it's a very interesting and very honest way of doing science. Yeah, and it's funny that it happened to us right after we published the other paper, <laughs> saying that it was important. It seems like we did it on purpose, you know, okay, let's prove it. We're going to do something that doesn't work, but it was very well designed. But again, sometimes it doesn't work, but we didn't find any evidence. But, you know, previous research did find evidence of maternal effects in that one species. So we didn't go with, you know, let's try with this species, who knows? But it happened that what we measured, the traits it measured weren't exactly the same and other variables that ended up, you know, not finding them for that specific design. But uh, indeed, it was quite uh, rewarding. And, and often the side, you know, the side results are the one that could also be interesting for future research. You know, the fact that, oh, why is it similar on both hosts and maybe even better on the novel one? You know, does it ex help explaining why they're so successful as an invasive species? And actually, our paper is based on a side result of one of our colleagues' previous papers. So, you know, a lot of great findings in science are just kind of like, oh, what is this? Why? Oh, cool. And it wasn't something we aimed at uh, exploring first. And I, yeah, I just uh, wanted to add, like, the, despite the negative results, one of the reviewers was really detailed and uh, they really made us think hard about what we want to test and uh, how we are testing it. So I think that a lot of readers can also take a lot of info or value from the introduction itself because mm -hmm. we really try to make our point clear there. And yeah, because of that, we are thankful also to the anonymous reviewer, whoever that was. You can find out all about Milan and Pierre's method and the Beatles they studied in the April episode, Maternal Matters. Another really interesting Beatle paper was published by friend of the podcast, Michael Pointer. 
who in May joined us with his co-authors Professor Matt Gage and Dr. Lewis Bergen to tell us why flower beetles in the genus Tribolium are the best model system that we're not currently using. Uh, so, as you say, Tribolium is a genus of small brown beetles, and they're thought to have once lived under the bark of trees, but they're now overwhelmingly found living alongside humans in grain storage facilities, where they're pests, eating and spoiling food products, and causing massive economic losses. We don't know how long that transition from a more free living to a more human commensal lifestyle has taken, but there is evidence of there being in some ancient Egyptian flower urns from about 5,000 years ago. Wow. Uh, so that's one way already that studying tribolium could be important and beneficial from an applied perspective, uh, improving food security. But these beetles also have a lot of features that make them really a useful model system for biologists. So, for example, beetles are a huge order and make up something like a quarter of all animal species. So tribolium are well positioned to be representative of many other species. And there are also quite a few practical things, like we can keep them in the lab just living in a pot of flour and easily sieve them out or sex them or mark individuals if we need to. And also that flower environment is very close to their semi-natural pest environment. So their lab habitat is less abstracted away from a natural habitat than it would be for many other model organisms. This episode even made the editor-in-chief of Heredity want to work with Tribolium, although I don't think they actually have yet. To find out why, listen to the episode A Pest with Potential, a name largely inspired by a comment from Matt Gage. Yeah, I think most people study Tribolium because they want to kill it. Um, because it, it, is, it is an important and damaging pest of stored products. But it has many other attributes as well for studying biology. And I, I'd really like to see it used more widely in undergraduate teaching, in evolution, ecology and genetics. And without being too boring on the sexual selection side, I think it'd be really nice. And we've kind of started to look at this to understand how sexual selection shapes a genome. Because there are all sorts of interesting predictions about how competition and choice and actually even the evolution of sex itself might be down to the importance of competition and choice for purging a genome to avoid deleterious mutation buildup. And if that's true, we might find signatures of that if we can look across genomes that have been under high versus low sexual selection. And that's where a combination of phenomics and genomics come together. And that's what we've been kind of trying to do through using this model at UEA. This blending of model system and applied thinking was a real highlight in this review paper, and it's something that we also saw in a lot of research articles. And back in August, we heard about what I think was one of the best examples of this, when Dr. Otaro Sawayama joined us to talk about his work looking at the genetic basis of a transparent phenotype in red seabream, a culturally and economically important fish in Japan. As its name suggests, red seabream has a bright red body color. This is one of the most important aquaculture fish species in Japan, and approximately 50 million fish are annually cultured. This fish is very tasty and commonly consumed as sashimi and sushi. So this fish is also exported to foreign countries, mainly South Korea, but also China, US, and Europe. Bright red color is a symbol of happiness. So this fish is traditionally important and used in many life events such as birth and wedding. Have you seen the winner of a small wrestler hold a big blim? So blim is traditionally important in our culture. The blim aquaculture has started since the 1960s. 
Soon after Let's See Bleem Aquaculture started, the seed production technique was developed, and the full life cycle has been controlled now. According to the document, the major farmed population was generated from around 700 wildfish. Selective breeding programs focusing on growth and disease resistance have been conducted, and now it has been taking over 10 generations, and growth and disease resistance traits have been drastically improved compared to the early days of receiving farming. See, it's an important fish. But what was really cool in this paper was the use of model and non model systems, as well as cutting edge genetics tools, to do some absolutely mind blowing science.、Mm-hmm. Association analysis revealed the mutation in exon 3 of dioxa causes transparent phenotype, and also the rescue experiment supported the result of genetic analysis. But still, there are all indirect pieces of evidence. So we want to have the direct evidence, like if dioxa is knocked out, the body color will be transparent or not. And resibleem takes at least two years for maturation, and also requires a large welding facility. So, the seabream is not suitable for a knockdown experiment. So, we used a small freshwater fish everyone knows, a zebrafish. This fish matures a couple of months, needs only a small tank, doesn't require a big concrete tank like the seabream, and is easy to care for. Moreover, there are a lot of genome resources. So, guide RNA was easily designed to exon 3 of the zebrafish, dioxa gene. And injected with Cas9 nucleus into fertilized egg of wild type zebrafish. The F0 crispans showed very low survival rate because genome editing might induce homozygous mutation in the target. To improve the survival of F0 crispans, we added saloxin to rearing water until the juvenile stage, and this improved the survival rate very much. And this was the key of this experiment. And F1 crispans were generated from those F0, and as we expected, all F1 crispans looked similar to transparent phenotype of the seabream. So, this was the direct evidence loss of function of this gene induced transparent phenotype in fish. Find out more, and I know you want to, in the episode Why is that fish transparent? Of course, we live for the new and the innovative here at Heredity. But sometimes the best work comes from looking at an old question in a new way. And to do that, we're going to finish this year where we started. You see, back in January, Professor Ilvira Hurandl guided us through an amazing review paper that she produced with biochemist Franz Halicek, which looked at one of the oldest questions in all of biology. Well, <laughs> I mean, there are many hypotheses around about the evolution of sex, yeah? So at least 20. <laughs>、um, none <laughs> of them are really、so、<laughs> satisfying, yeah? None of them really could explain the whole thing. But the basic components were basically already there. So, for instance, the idea that sexual systems are determined by sessility and motility, I mean, this was basically already recognized by Darwin. So, this is not so new, and we just have to rethink about it. It. But also, when we look into the biochemistry, sources of oxidative stress in plants, animals, fungi are quite well known and quite well studied. But、uh, this is a separate research field, yeah, and people do not find together. This is the problem. And we make here 
a causal connection. And uh, I think to especially look more into these effects of this is an indirect effect of oxygen radical formation is uh, very important because altogether this uh, oxygen shapes the physiology of all eukaryotes and is probably also the main trigger for uh, meiosis and so on. Yeah, so this is what has to be done. And we also, we hope to stimulate such interdisciplinary thinking and interdisciplinary research and collaborations. So I think sometimes it's not necessary to develop something completely new, but to bring ideas together. This paper is fascinating. It covers plants, animals, and fungi. And it really shows the value of collaborating across different fields of science. But perhaps what I love most about this episode, and why it stands out so vividly to me, is something that happened after it was released. You see, it was found by an art student in Portugal who reached out on Twitter, where we had a great conversation about this episode and everything that she'd learned from it. And it reminded me why we do this, to communicate the incredible work of researchers around the world to as broad an audience as possible. It's something heredity as a whole, and I personally, put great value on. So whether you're a regular listener or just tune in every now and then to hear about a colleague's work, I want to thank you for listening to the Heredity Podcast this year. There'll be more great science coming to you in 2022. And hopefully some of you listening will also be joining me on this side of the podcast to discuss the incredible things you're going to be publishing in Heredity over the coming year. You can find all of the episodes featured today and our entire back catalogue on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you subscribe, you will never miss an episode. Heredity is the official journal of the Genetic Society. You can find out more about the journal at nature.com forward slash hdy. And you can also follow us on Twitter. That's at Heredity Journal. If you want to get in touch with me directly, drop me an email at hereditypodcast.gen at gmail.com. But until 2022, I'm James Bergen, and thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.